to return to John chapter 10 this morning. John chapter 10, where we will find Jesus still engaged with the Jews in a heated discussion over his identity. John chapter 10. fact is, every chapter in John's gospel up to this point has involved some discussion of Jesus' true identity. In John 1, Jesus called Philip, who in turn found Nathanael, and told him, We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. But Nathanael objected immediately, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In John 2, Jesus cleansed the temple and provoked an enormous discussion about his identity with the Jerusalem authorities. In John 3, Jesus had a long conversation with Nicodemus concerning his true identity. In John 4, Jesus disclosed his true messianic identity to the woman at the well in a lengthy conversation. In John 5, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda, provoking an enormous conflict over his healing on the Sabbath and his relationship to the Father. In John 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. Then he walked across the stormy sea. The next day, we found him embroiled in a controversy over his identity. Then in John 7 and 8, we found Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And once again, he was discussing his true identity. And many in the Jerusalem leadership concluded that he was the offspring of Satan. Then in John chapter 9, Jesus dramatically healed a man who was born blind. And that healed man got it right when he identified Jesus as from God. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, the man said. But the Jewish leadership cast him out. Friends, when we define the term gospel, our tendency is to run to the end of the four gospels and to focus our attention on the work of Christ on the cross, which, of course, is important. But actually, the person of Jesus Christ, his identity matters. Spartacus and thousands of others suffered on crosses, but they are not saviors. The gospel writers actually devote the majority of their time to establishing Jesus' true identity. So, it's in that context, then, that we have to approach John chapter 10. In John 10, we stumble across yet another discussion about Jesus' true identity. In fact, the earlier controversy back in chapter 7 and 8 at the Feast of Tabernacles was only exacerbated when Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter 9. And things are really going to get heated once again in John chapter 10. Let's actually start at the end of our text today, and then we'll go back to the beginning. Notice where the whole passage is going in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, I emphasize the word again. 
because it does indeed summarize a great deal of what we've seen so far in John. Again and again and again and again, this issue keeps coming up. Who is he? And notice how polarized the options have become. Either Jesus is who he claimed to be, or he is an insane demoniac. But would a demoniac open blind eyes? These are the stark options that we are given in John's Gospel. There really is no third option. And believe it or not, Matthew's Gospel drove us to the same stark options. By the time we reach Matthew 12, many Pharisees convinced themselves that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul. That's it. It can't be God. It has to be Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Many people who have a limited acquaintance with the Gospels do not realize the Gospels actually present to us Jesus in these very stark terms. In fact, many Christians who have read the Gospels for a long time somehow miss this. Either Jesus is God or Jesus is the devil. There is no third option. Most people want to assume there's some sort of third option, right? Jesus is some sort of great person empowered by God. But the fact is, nearly everything that we know about the life of Jesus of Nazareth comes from those four Gospels. And those four Gospels never give you that option. The Gospels give us light or darkness. Jesus is God or Jesus is the devil. You have to decide. But could a demon bring light to blind eyes? Or would a demon just leave them in perpetual darkness? That's the issue. So with those options in place, let's actually back up for just a moment into chapter 9. And let's carry the proper momentum forward into chapter 10. In chapter 9, we witness a series of interrogations where the hostile Jews attempted to understand what happened to the man who had been born blind. However, the Jews had already made up their mind about Jesus. The conversation with the man's parents, beginning in verse 19, really makes this clear. Look at the text. And ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. What's going on behind the scenes? Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This is no legitimate investigation. The Jewish leadership already concluded that Jesus isn't the Christ. He could have opened a hundred blind eyes. It wouldn't matter. If anyone confesses Jesus as Messiah, he is cut off from the community. He is kicked out of the synagogue. Now that same bias shows up when the Jews interrogate the man who had been healed. But for his part, he comes to terms with what had actually happened to him and the significance of Jesus' miracle. Jesus cannot possibly come from Satan. How could that be? Look at verse 30. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? 
We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So whoever healed me, says the man, and at this point he had not laid eyes on Jesus, that man has to be from God. That's exactly right. But what is the verdict of the Jews? Verse 34, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Well, when they accuse the man of being born in utter sin, that is a reference actually to his congenital blindness. Back in verse 2, the Jews believed that a man born with some birth defect, like blindness, was born that way because of some previous sin, either in the part of his parents or in the part of that man in the womb. But here's the irony. To make a reference to his being born in utter sin is to admit that the man was actually born blind. That's what they're saying. You were born in utter sin, you were born blind. So they're having to admit the very thing they're trying to disprove, that a miracle actually happened. And they're too blind to see their own folly, and they cast him out. All right? Now, that miracle account then pressurizes the next scene when we come to chapter 10, and Jesus is not about to back down. Jesus, in fact, is going to press on with two metaphors, two illustrations, that of a shepherd and that of a door, to establish his own identity. And not only that, but to identify the Jerusalem leadership as thieves and robbers. This is really getting heated. So chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Well, did you pick up on the two metaphors that Jesus uses? In English, we are taught not to mix our metaphors. But in this case, Jesus identifies himself first as the shepherd, and then secondly as the door, and then he switches back again to the shepherd. And the first metaphor, certainly, and likely both metaphors, are lost on the Jews. Verse 6 makes this clear. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Well, let's investigate these two illustrations. In many instances, Jewish families kept their livestock penned up in courtyards attached to their homes, particularly if they had larger homes. But in other cases, multiple families would share a large independent enclosure where several flocks were herded together into a single pen. And it's this latter that is the sort of enclosure that Jesus speaks of in verses 1 through 6. He's going to change when we get to verse 7, but it's that latter type that he's speaking of here. That community, multiple family enclosure where lots of people come and bring their sheep. Their sheep. Uh, these pens were often built of stone. And they were built in such a way that they had a single gate, a single entry. And all the sheep would come funneling in to that single entry. And collectively, those families would hire an under-shepherd or a watchman. In verse 3, he is called the gatekeeper. And that gatekeeper was a trusted individual whose job it was to fend off thieves and robbers who might come in and steal away the sheep. That gatekeeper would situate himself strategically right there in the gate where he could guard the livestock of his various employers. The thief, verse 1, would have to scale the wall, jump over, jump down to the pen, and then try to hoist a lamb up over the wall to try to get him out. It was a difficult thing to do. Now, the true shepherd of the sheep doesn't approach the sheepfold that way. The true shepherd of the sheep can walk right up to the entrance. He can walk right up to the gatekeeper. He comes to the gatekeeper, verse 3, And that gatekeeper recognizes the true shepherd, and he opens the gate. He says, come on in. The shepherd then, verse 3, calls out his own flock from that larger flock gathered in the pen. Now, inside these enclosures, not all those sheep belong to the same shepherd. But amazingly, those whom he calls by name trot off and follow him. The sheep actually know the voice of the shepherd, and the shepherd knows their names. The sheep will not follow a strange shepherd. 
They will only follow the shepherd they know. And of course, this metaphor emphasizes the voice of the true shepherd. This is a beautiful image of God's delicate call of his own people to salvation. Jesus comes to the sheep pen of Judaism, found there in Jerusalem, and he just calls out his messianic flock. Even the blind sheep, John 9, even the blind sheep hear his voice, and they come running. They come running back from the pool of Siloam to find the true shepherd. Now, friends, this metaphor is not just a beautiful image of a shepherd and a sheep. It's much more than that. Would you turn to Ezekiel chapter 34? This metaphor is also a stab at the heart of Judaism with its false shepherds. Jesus is saying, you religious leaders are thieves and robbers. Jesus knew the Old Testament very well. And he knew the prophets of old frequently railed against the false shepherds of Israel. And would you look at what Ezekiel claims in chapter 34? The word of the Lord came to me. Chapter 34, verse 1. Verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and over every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. What a scathing indictment of the religious leaders of Ezekiel's day. They refused to care for the sheep. And friends, this is precisely the situation that Jesus runs into in Jerusalem. If you had a blind sheep miraculously cured, would you just cast them out of the pen to be devoured by the wolves? But the shepherds just cast the blind man out of the synagogue. Well, unlike those leaders, Jesus is a good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He calls them by name. He protects them. He nurtures them. And they follow him. And they will not be misled by the voice of a stranger. They, they, they hear the voice of the true shepherd Do you recall how eagerly the blind man embraced the voice of Jesus, having never seen him? It was really remarkable. He'd never seen him, and he embraced the voice. But recall from chapter 8, on three occasions, Jesus chastised the Jews for their inability to receive his word. Like, you can't hear me. But the blind man heard. 
So with that in place, let's turn to John chapter 10 once again. And just remember the words of verse 6. They did not understand what he was saying to them. The whole illustration is lost on the Jewish leaders. And that brings us then to the second illustration that Jesus uses beginning with verse 7. One of the keys to really understanding John 10 is to understand that Jesus is actually using two illustrations, two metaphors, not just one. When you read straight through it, it's a little bit confusing because he switches on you in the middle. All right? But in verses 1 through 18, all right, we have this narrative of the shepherd, but actually there's two different illustrations involved. Don't conflate the two. Verse 6 is the summary of the first illustration. The word again in verse 7 begins a new illustration. And let's note several differences between them. In the first illustration, Jesus is the shepherd going to a community sheep pen and calling out his particular sheep. Beginning with verse 7, Jesus is now the door. He's the gate, and this time to a private sheep pen. He's thinking of one of those private sheep pens next to someone's residence. The gatekeeper is gone. The hired hand is gone. Now, in the first illustration, only some of the sheep belong to Jesus. In the second illustration, all the sheep in the pen belong to Jesus. All right? In the first illustration, the thieves and robbers scale the walls. In the second illustration, the only way in is the door. For whatever reason, they can't get over the wall. So the only way in is through the door. And Jesus is the door. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. All right? So when you see the differences, it's like, oh, he's got two illustrations going on here. You read them all as one, it gets a little bit confusing. All right? But read them as two illustrations, and it begins to make a whole lot more sense. And when you put it all together, Jesus' emphasis in the second illustration is on the one means of salvation through himself. Right? You have to come through him as a contrast to all the thieves and the robbers, the false teachers who preceded him. He is the one way in. Now the fact is, Israel was just rife with false teachers, false Christs, and cunning politicians who promised salvation, but actually destroyed the flock. Jewish theologian and historian Hillel Silver writes in the first century the following words. Listen to this. The first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction of the temple, that's Jesus' generation, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. This is to be attributed to the prevalent belief induced by the popular chronology of that day that the age was on the threshold of the millennium. So all these messiahs are coming in the first century. Hines Schreckenberg, who's a Jewish historian and a scholar, gives us a list of would-be messiahs in the pre-A.D. 70 period. Listen to these names. Justice, son of Ezekias, Simon of Perea, Athronges, Judas of Galilee, Thutis, an Egyptian prophet, the imposter, an unnamed group of religious enthusiasts. We don't know their names, but we know there was a group of them. Menahem, the son of Judas of Galilee. Simon Bar-Giora, John of Gishgala, 
the Samaritan Messiah, and Jonathan the Weaver, and I'm omitting others. These were all messiahs who, act, who were active in the first century. Lots and lots of them. Josephus himself gives us a description of these false messiahs. He writes, Now it came to pass, while Fadius was procurator of Judea, that a certain magician whose name was Thutis persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan. Sounds like John the Baptist. For he told them that he was a prophet, and he would by his own command divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. Hippolytus, the church father, wrote, quote, There rose some, saying, I am Christ, and the rest whose names I have not time to reckon up. In other words, there are lots of them. Israel, my friends, was just full of false messiahs in the first century. Lots and lots of messiahs coming along and leading people to destruction. And the truth is, Israel isn't alone. The whole history of the world is full of its pharaohs, its Napoleons, its Stalins, Hitlers, Maos, Husseins, Putins, who come as saviors and invariably trample humanity, causing enormous harm and loss of life. It's the history of the world. Well, the contrast between Jesus and such evil rulers is spelled out in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I've emphasized previously that unlike every other world ruler who comes to rule and then die, Jesus came to die and then rule. That's what made him so different. At his resurrection, the meek and mild Jesus, having been led like a lamb to the executioner, suddenly claimed to have all authority over heaven and earth. He rules with a rod of iron, that is true. But all who bow to that iron scepter find eternal life. And he leads them, as Psalm 23 tells us, to green pastures, to verdant valleys, and the springs of living water. The main point of Jesus' second illustration is that he is the door, the one way, and also the true shepherd, as opposed to all the false shepherds who came before him and those who are still coming up to the present hour. Now, again, it may be a little bit confusing, but halfway through the second illustration, Jesus switches metaphors. Right? He's the door, that's true, he's the one way in, but likewise, again, he's the true shepherd. Verse 11 I am the good shepherd. I am the door. Okay. Now I am the shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now let's take a moment and just really appreciate what Jesus is claiming in verses 11 through 18. The hired hand, verse 12, flees when he sees the wolf coming. Why does he flee? Well, the answer, verse 13, is the sheep are not his own. But Jesus, in verse 15, is more than willing to lay down his own life for his sheep. But get this, not just his own sheep. In fact, Jesus has other sheep that he's willing to lay down his life for. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And more than likely, he is referencing here the Gentile flock that's still to come in, the Gentile harvest that's still coming in. 
that Jesus has other sheep besides those Jewish believers, like the man born blind, who are yet to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of that is clear enough from a simple reading of the passage. But again, do we really appreciate what Jesus is saying? I think this is one of those passages that's so familiar that perhaps we don't understand it. Let's actually shed some further light on the passage with four observations. First of all, are you ready for this? You may not have heard this before, but customarily, shepherds did not lay down their lives for their sheep. I know you've probably heard it interpreted otherwise. I, too, have heard all sorts of dubious claims about how Jewish shepherds were willingly mauled by lions and bears for the sake of the sheep. But if you think about it, those claims are actually nonsense. Now, it is true, it is true that shepherds did put themselves in harm's way. They did indeed fight off a marauding bear or a prowling wolf. And it is true that shepherds are brave men, and they chased off wild animals to protect their family's flocks so they could feed their children. But friends, it was not customary for a shepherd to sacrificially die for a sheep. That actually was not customary. A shepherd did not sacrificially die for his sheep. Yes, indeed, he took a calculated risk when he believed he could fend off the predator. That is true. But what shepherd in his right mind actually died for his sheep? Would you die for a family pet? Would you? Would any of you die for a family pet? I wouldn't. I have a cat. Of course I wouldn't, right? <laughs> Some of you dog lovers, I don't know, but no one dies for a cat. We get that. <laughs> All right? I, I think we approach this past, oh, yeah, yeah, the shepherd goes off and dies for a sheep. No, they didn't. You've got to remember that these shepherds actually raised these sheep for slaughter. They raised them for animal sacrifice. They raised them for food. They raised them to be eaten. These aren't even family pets. These are their food sources. They raised them for sacrifice. So Jesus' claim in verse 11 is actually quite radical. If not a bit confusing, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Actually, he's ultimately not talking about a human shepherd dying for an animal. That actually would be a wasted life. A human shepherd dying for an animal? He's actually alluding to a far greater sacrifice. A sacrifice alluded to in verse 17. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me. Because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Well, what is that a reference to? I think we all realize that's the cross, and that's the tomb, and that's the resurrection. That's where he's pointing. And that leads to a second observation. Secondly, the metaphor teaches us why Jesus is so loved by the Father. God loves Jesus because. He gave his life in sacrifice. 
Now, that's not to say that God was just sort of withholding his love until Jesus proved it. God knew from all eternity the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is precisely the kind of person who would die for someone else. That's why the Father loves him. Not because, again, he had to wait and see if he's going to die, but he knew the character of Jesus Christ. So when we return to the question of Jesus' identity, that's the question that's been roaming all the way through John. Jesus once again makes a very bold declaration. The Father loves me. Why? Because I am intrinsically worthy of the Father's love. And in verse 17, then, there's a third important observation. That is, Jesus claimed that he died in order to rise again. Look at the text. I laid down my life that I may take it up again. The Father loves Jesus because he knows that he can die and take his life up again. In other words, the resurrection to come is not merely an afterthought. The resurrection was not a surprising turn of events in the plan of God. God loved his son whom he sent into the world on a, me- in a, mi- on a mission of death and resurrection. And God had every confidence that Jesus would succeed because he understood Jesus' true identity. Jesus as God was not about to stay dead. If you think about God on the Sabbath following Jesus' crucifixion, he's not nervously just wringing his hands wondering if the resurrection is going to work out on Easter morning. That's not what happened. God understood that Jesus could lay down his life and take it up again. This is a dramatic assertion of Jesus' true identity. And that leads to a fourth observation, and that is that Jesus' death was a voluntary death. Now, let's be very precise. I don't mean that he offered to have his life taken from him. What I mean is he offered his life. You hear the difference? Jesus did not offer to have his life taken from him. He offered his life. No one actually could take the life of Jesus. He had to lay it down. Look at verses 17 and 18 very carefully. For this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Clarification. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is speaking with great deliberation and clarity. As the Son of the Father, He is God. He is the source of all life. Jesus is life itself. And there is no way that mere mortals could actually rob God of His life. That's not possible. You cannot rob God of his life. Life is more fundamental than death. And that's because a living God is the fundamental essence of all reality. No one can overcome God's life. Well, that being true, if Jesus is going to die to lay down his life for the sheep, it must be voluntary. He must lay down his life. And so he says, I lay down my life. 
What does that mean? Jesus says, no one takes it from me. No one took his life away. No one could actually deprive Jesus of his own life. And friends, we are all very familiar with the authority that Jesus had to resurrect, right? He has authority to resurrect from the grave, but Jesus equally insists, I have authority to die. I have authority to lay down my life. Divine authority was at work in both cases. Jesus commanded the very moment of his death on behalf of his sheep. And if you recall, I have brought this out in previous sermons, but I want to emphasize it again. When Jesus died, Matthew's gospel twice points to the volume of his voice. When Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His voice was loud. That's crucial. It was loud, and this was only the ninth hour, the hour that Jesus died. He died in a relatively short amount of time compared to most crucifixion victims. Matthew tells us that he died with a loud voice, and he deliberately yielded up his spirit. Well, from what we know, crucifixion victims died of exhaustion, coupled with asphyxiation. In many cases, it would take days to die. Hanging from arms suspended by nails put increasing pressure on one's lungs to the point that it became increasingly difficult to breathe. Toward the end, the victim would have to try to heave himself upward against the pierced hands and the pierced heels to try to get some air into his lungs. As that body wore away on the cross, less and less oxygen would actually be taken into the lungs to the point that the crucifixion victim suffocated in a sea of oxygen. He simply had no energy left to breathe. Like he was worn down and worn down and worn down and worn down and that last drop of energy drained away and he could no longer breathe. It was an excruciating way to die. And those who witnessed crucifixions heard their voice just slip away long before they expired. When the victim ultimately crossed that ragged border between life and death was always a mystery. Crucifixion victims always died in silence. With no air in their lungs, they would not cry out with a loud voice. That was actually impossible. But that's what Jesus did. Twice. And he died within six hours. And that's because Jesus, unlike every other crucifixion victim, laid down his own life voluntarily. Look at the text. I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. He has authority to take it up. We get that. I have authority to lay down my life. Jesus commanded the very moment of his death. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This is highly, highly unusual. And this is what makes him a wonderful shepherd. He voluntarily laid down his life sacrificially for the sheep. 
So friends, when you consider those four observations, Jesus' metaphor actually just transforms our whole understanding of the role of the shepherd. It focuses our attention on his true identity. That issue just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up and coming up again and again and again. And I can't help but believe that there may be people here that have sat in these pews from the beginning of John's Gospel. And this issue of Christ's identity just keeps coming up again and again and again. And you're forced to see it again and again and again. And I just want to ask you whether there is a third option. The Gospels do not give you a third option. Either Jesus is who he claimed to be or he is Beelzebub. That's it. But friends, Jesus is no ordinary shepherd who occasionally places himself in harm's way, assuming that he can ward off the angry animal. Jesus voluntarily sacrifices his life for the sheep. And this is why the Father loves him. This is what, Je- this is what sets Jesus apart from all the false shepherds. God, God loves that one. God loves Jesus. And this is why Jesus' identity is fundamentally different from every other Christ. If you think about all those questions about Jesus' identity that just keep punctuating John's narrative from the first chapter, that they're finally beginning to coalesce around Jesus' true identity as the messianic shepherd who has come to die and to resurrect his own sheep. So can I ask you this, if Jesus Christ is truly worthy of God the Father's love, the Father who is the most infinitely loving being in all the universe, if Jesus is worthy of his love, don't you suppose he is equally worthy of our love? We are the ones, after all, for whom he laid down his life and took it up again. This is true of both believers and unbelievers alike, friends. You need to look at the love of God for Jesus. Look at the love of God for Jesus. If God loves Jesus, ought you not to love the Lord Jesus Christ? Can I say it another way? You actually cannot love God without loving what God loves. That's impossible. You cannot love God without loving what God loves, and therefore you cannot love God without loving Jesus. Now, as we go to prayer, would you all turn to Psalm 123? Psalm 123, I read this psalm this morning. I thought, you know what, this would be a really good way to end this morning. I told John, I'm going to try to do a really good job about getting out on time so you have good choir practice, okay? I've done it. Look, we're in good shape here. Okay, but would you turn to Psalm 23 and just take a few minutes... And let this psalm be the application of the passage for you today. When you look at verse 1, would you just plug the name Jesus in there? Notice it's in all capitals. That's Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd. Well, Jesus is Yahweh. So can I encourage all of us to read down to the psalm, insert Jesus, and apply, apply these words today.
Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus leads me beside still waters. Jesus restores my soul. Jesus leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Jesus is with me. Jesus, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's the same rod and staff which with he rules the nations with a rod of iron, but they, they comfort me. Jesus prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of Jesus forever. Father, I pray that these words would truly change our hearts, change our affections for the Lord Jesus Christ. And for anyone here today who has not put his or her faith in Christ, Lord, may they be drawn to the person whom you love. God, you love your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to pray specifically, Lord, for people this morning in this room who as of yet do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give them the faith and the regeneration that they need in their hearts to truly love the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all love. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.